Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Law podcast. My name is Ian Drake, and I'm joined today by Suja A. Thomas, a professor of law at the University of Illinois College of Law, and we're going to be discussing her new book, The Missing American Jury, Restoring the Fundamental Constitutional Role of the Criminal, Civil, and Grand Juries. It's published by Cambridge University Press. And Suja, welcome to New Books and Law podcast. Thank you. What I'd like to start off with is um, for you to comment on what drew you to this topic. Um, why did you uh, feel a need to write about this at this time? Sure. Uh, I was originally interested in the topic um, many years ago. I tried a case um, in New York where I represented a plaintiff in a discrimination suit. And after the jury found for um, the plaintiff, the the jury found certain damages um, for the person's um, emotional distress associated with a discrimination and retaliation claim. And I thought that was great, but the judge actually reduced the damages award uh, significantly um, from over $219,000 to $20,000, or we were going to have a new trial. And so I became interested in this topic many years ago, and that is of a shift of authority from juries to other parts of government. And I started to see a lot of patterns um, where authority of the jury was taken by other parts of government. And that's what led to this book. So you had your own um, experience that was negative with the jury system, or not so much the jury system, but really the judge, right? Yeah, yeah. I saw this. Uh, I was very surprised to see this, uh, that some other part of government could take the authority of the jury away effectively. Okay. So um, your argument, I was struck by uh, the, the claim you make, um, and we'll talk about, uh, I'm going to mention a few things right now that we can talk about in greater depth, but uh, you make an, what is essentially, as you describe it yourself, an originalist argument. Um, wherein, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, originalism is essentially the interpretation of a statute or constitution according to the meaning that it had at the time that it was enacted, uh, the, the popular meaning uh, of the terms used in the statute or constitutional provision. Um, there are different strands of originalism, but that seems to be the one that you're embracing in this book. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And And so... Your argument is an intriguing one where you argue that essentially the founders, they didn't have a, they did not simply envision three branches of government, but essentially a fourth branch. And so can you expand upon that? Sure. In the book, I I really try to make the argument that the jury serves as the role of a branch of government, just like the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary. And that is that when the founders talked about the jury, they talked about it in the same types of terms that they talked about the executive legislature and the judiciary and even the states. And that is that the jury was a protection against other parts of government. Um, and, and so 
um, as a result of finding this information about how the founders um, talked about the jury. And also, if you look at the text of the Constitution, the jury is actually very similar to other parts of government. And that is that the constitutional text empowers the jury to decide certain types of cases. Um, And so that's the reason why I argue that we really should be treating the jury um, just like um, another branch of government. Now, one of the um, concerns uh, that I had, and this may seem very simplistic, um, first three articles deal with three different branches. Uh, Why do they not then perhaps create a separate article for the juries per se? Well, in the, in the, um, uh, in article three, they actually mentioned both the judiciary and the jury. And so you could say that article three, um, is, is, uh, shared by the judiciary and the jury. Uh, and, and so that's the criminal jury that's in article, um, three, section two. Um, so, so that's one argument. And then the second, um, part of this is that, Post um, the original Constitution being enacted, uh, the Seventh Amendment provides for the civil jury and the Fifth Amendment provides for the grand jury. And so they get their own provisions um, in the Constitution. It's just in the Bill of Rights. So I actually think that um, if you look at this text, the actual text and what it states, it similarly provides for the jury to have authority or power, just like it provides that the executive has certain authority and the legislature has certain authority and the states have certain authority and the judiciary has certain authority. And so when the framers of the Constitution are drafting Article 3 and they're thinking about the jury function, it's are you assuming, uh, is it right to assume that they were not so much thinking about how the individual state juries were going to function, but rather juries only in federal court? That's a difficult question because um, there is some indication um, when the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment talk about the 14th Amendment, and that is um, whether or not um, uh, certain provisions of the Bill of Rights should apply to the states, that there was some indication um, that there was already a belief that certain parts um, of the Bill of Rights actually apply to the states. Um, and so um, I, I think it's a, it's a difficult, um, uh, um, it's a difficult argument to sort of um, pinpoint. Um, so yeah. So is the um, is this partly a, a historical concern for an originalist approach? Meaning, is there enough evidence historically for us to be able to confidently conclude that what the framers wanted was a very powerful jury? And in the book, of course, you, what you do is you you go into uh, you take a historical investigation of different terms used in terms of common law and um, other terms that were used in 1791 with the uh, Seventh Amendment and in uh, 1787 with Article III. Um, is there sufficient evidence um, to know really what the original intention was um, and then the original meaning would have followed on with that? Uh, but do we really know then what they were historically thinking at the time they drafted this in terms of what kind of juries uh, they would be dealing with? Yeah, I think that 
That is right, because uh, the historical basis of the jury in the United States was this incredibly vibrant English jury. And and that jury um, was such that, you know, you had grand juries deciding whether serious cases should proceed. You had juries decided whether defendants were guilty of crimes. And you had juries deciding um, whether monetary damages or fines should be awarded. And we based our jury on that English system. And so um, there's, there's plenty of evidence that that's what we based our system on. Uh, and then you have the provisions of the Constitution itself um, that provide for vibrant jury authority. Uh, and then if you look back, which is what the Supreme Court does, right, the Supreme Court looks back and, and looks at our history and has looked at English history to interpret lots of provisions of the Constitution and sometimes the provisions of the the, the, the jury provisions. Um, so I do think that there's um, significant um, uh, evidence that supports the jury having, having vibrant power that's based on the English jury. And I could talk more about, you know, specific uh, uh, procedures like that we didn't have procedures like summary, summary judgment in civil cases. We didn't have plea bargaining. And I want to get into that in a little bit in terms of uh, what comes along later historically. But let's let's stick with the 18th century for a few, a few minutes. In terms of what is uh, the role of the jury, whether it's at the colonial, provincial level, or even in uh, London itself? In other words, how active is the jury? What do they do? Uh, beyond simply deciding the facts of a case? Yeah, the, the role of the jury was um, significantly to check the government. That was one very, very important role for the jury. Uh, and so you would have uh, sedition cases um, where where people were prosecuted for um, speaking out against the government, and juries would um, refuse to um, indict or convict in those types of cases. So one really important function um, was to check the government. Uh, and um, I think that uh, because of the fact that juries decide very few cases now um, has been taken away. Um, and, and then outside of that, um, the English um, and then we followed, we just decided that there were the jury should be the body that decides disputes between people where monetary damages are awarded. And, and so we, we delegated that to bodies of people to decide. And I think that makes a lot of sense that the community gets involved in those types of decisions. And was there general agreement on all sides uh, that this is really the role that the jury should take or was there a decline from the beginning in terms of the jury's fortune in, in the American context? It's uh, hard to, uh, if you're talking about the statistics, um, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when the decline of the jury um, occurred. Um, there are some statistics that show that plea bargaining, for example, occurred only in around 20% of the cases um, at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, and then that, that increased, um, you could argue, to around 90% at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, but, um, so the, and that's in the criminal context, and those figures aren't um, uh, exact. Um, but um, it's hard to exactly say when anything in particular occurred, because statistics are 
um, so are not readily available, you know, until kind of the mid twentieth um, century. Uh, so if you're talking about statistics, that's it's difficult to actually say exactly what is happening at what point in time, although I try to do some analysis. In the and statistics are even tough to come by today sometimes, right, with modern. Although although we're doing more and more of that. But, but I think I haven't even mentioned those statistics yet. But, um, you know, right now we have uh, less than 1% of civil cases decided um, by juries um, where those cases are filed in federal and state court. And um, in criminal cases, um, uh, only one to four percent of um, of cases filed in federal and state court are decided by by juries, and then in many states we don't even have grand juries. So you make uh, the argument that the jury is an integral part of the political system. Um, in other words, it's more than just the co- something of a co-equal or a symbi- symbiotic relationship between the judge and the jury. It's actually beyond. Uh, just the judiciary as an institution, it reaches into action by the executive and even the legislative branches. Can you expand upon that a little bit? Sure. Um, so, so the the jury can uh, check uh, the the uh, executive uh, uh, by the fact that um, if someone chooses to, for example, prosecute a case. Um, that the jury can decide, you know, no, that person shouldn't have been prosecuted. The, the jury can check the legislature uh, by the fact that um, the legislature makes something a law, um, for example, the sedition laws, and say, you know, no, someone shouldn't be um, convicted because of that. The jury can check um, the executive where there's a civil case brought against um, someone who uh, – a, a, the police, police who come into someone's home and, um, and the jury um, uh, can decide whether or not someone should actually receive damages because uh, a person came into someone's home. So there's a lot of ways that the jury can um, uh, check the government um, and as a result is an integral part of government. So some of the evidence that you use um, to note the active work of the jury and its protection is Supreme Court decisions in the 19th and 20, early 20th century. And uh, you charted out at one point where you note that around the latter half, but especially near the end of the 19th century, there are several uh, Supreme Court cases that uphold the power of the jury and challenge attempts by the judges uh, to take certain functions away from the jury. And it, it seems to me that, um, the, that that would suggest then that there needs to be some quote-unquote policing that's done by the court uh, uh, on behalf of the jury. So post-Civil War, perhaps, this is when we start to see the beginnings of the judiciary itself trying to take over functions from the jury? Is that is that really when you uh, um, are concluding that it must be beginning because we start to see these Supreme Court cases that actively defend the jury? Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's an interesting, it's an interesting point. Um, the, the, um, the, the main point that I try to make in the book is that I know that we see these anti-Supreme Court decisions um, on the jury beginning in the 
1930 and going going forward. And so it's an interesting point that you're making that that um, earlier than that, that the court had to kind of defend the jury's authority and that there were these active ways to um, that were attacking the jury's authority. Um, I, I actually haven't you know thought about it that way. And and I've been more thinking about it in terms of um, that that you know, that the court decided certain um, cases where it was pro-jury, um, that is, um, um, decided issues that favored jury authority, and then later, as you know um, from the book, that later the court actually decided the same issue against jury authority. But you make an interesting point about um, why the court was getting involved in those circumstances and that maybe, in fact, at that point in time, uh, the court was becoming a defender but then, as my book tells the story, it certainly later um, uh, is not a defense. That's right. Um, the, the point you make in, in regard to these uh, decisions is that at one point the Supreme Court essentially defended the jury in the 1890s, roughly. And by the 1930s and thereafter, you get this erosion of jury power. Um, now, Let's give a couple of examples of what's going on here. So, so what is it that now the judges are doing that juries previously handled? Sure. Um, so I think um, one of the examples I like to give, I like to give a criminal example, which is um, uh, in 1898, the Supreme Court said that uh, uh, a criminal defendant could not waive the trial of um, 12 jurors. Um, but then uh, on that same issue, in 1930, the Supreme Court said, yes, a criminal defendant can waive uh, the trial of jurors. And in fact, a judge can decide instead of a jury, uh, even though Article 3, Section 2 specifically states a jury should decide. And then in 1970, the Supreme Court actually said that you don't even have to have 12 jurors. Um, and so that's an example of uh, in the criminal context where the court makes a decision in favor of jury authority, but then turns around and decides two decisions on the exact same issue and goes against what it decided in the past. And then the, the civil example that I like to give is that um, the Supreme Court considered a case where uh, in a civil case, uh, once a jury found for, let's say, Jane, uh, that if the judge thought the evidence was insufficient, and that is that the jury should not have found for Jane, uh, that the judge could not find for the other party, let's say that's um, Ken, um, the judge could order a new trial, uh, but, the, but the judge could not find for Ken. And then just, just over 20 years later, the Supreme Court just totally, completely um, switched and changed its mind and said that, once, um, in a civil case, once a jury finds for, for Jane, if the judge thinks the jury was wrong, the judge can find for the other party, Ken. Um, that's it. And so one of the things that I say in the book is that um, in many contexts, I think that the, the jury has become an advisory jury. Um, that's how we really need to think about our jury in the United States right now. And so um, historically, what do you think are the causes of this? You offer up several um, possible causes, and sometimes they're even expressly referred to by the courts themselves, or at least by commentators, even if they're not sitting on the bench. So w- what are the, some of the causes that you think led to this shift in uh, the jury's power? Sure. Uh, so one of the things you, I think I have to point out, and I kind of point out in the book, that 
the jury is actually really different than these other parts of government. Um, the jury can't protect its own authority. It has certain characteristics. Obviously, it has to actually be constituted so the executive can can act and prosecute or, or pardon. Um, the legislature can make laws. The judiciary can act. The states can act. But the jury actually has to be constituted. And so that's part of the story, I think, that the jury is this sort of um, passive actor that actually has to be put in place. But one of the things I point out is that um, the characteristics of the jury that are different than these other parts of government, um, that's always been the case. The jury's always had those characteristics. And as we talked about, the jury has sometimes been held to have authority. So what I point out is that the Supreme Court itself has uh, talked about the jury in, in different terms than the Supreme Court has talked about the what I call the traditional actors um, of the executive, the legislature, the judiciary, and the states, and that is the Supreme Court has used doctrine um, to protect the power of those parts of government. It's used separation of powers to protect the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary. It's used federalism to protect um, the the federal government versus the the states. That is, it, it uses these doctrines to protect each of these parts of government and to limit each of these parts of government. But the court, even though the founders talked about the jury very similarly to how the founders talked about these other parts of government, the court has never created doctrine to actually protect the authority of the jury. And so that's one thing I think that's really happening here. Um, and and then, um, uh, as you know from the book, um, what I do is I try to look at um, this period of time where authority starts to shift away from juries um, in those cases that, I, like I mentioned before, um, there are several examples of the court deciding in favor of jury authority and then deciding against jury authority. And so I tried to actually look at New York Times articles to try to figure out what was going on. And, um, and I looked at New York Times articles because scholars have talked about that the, that the uh, Supreme Court uh, potentially can be influenced by or, or follow public opinion. And, uh, and so I, I looked at um, New York Times articles because that could indicate public opinion. And people have also written, scholars have written that the Supreme Court may follow or or be influenced by elite public opinion, and the New York Times could could potentially indicate that. So I looked for the term juries um, in a period of time that started with the time that the New York Times started to the time that I see this pattern starting where uh, the Supreme Court starts deciding against jury authority, and I and I found um, some hints um, for what's going on, including judges speaking um, against juries and talking about how uh, juries um, aren't as good as judges. Uh, so you even have a justice of the Supreme Court who had formerly served on the Supreme Court, later served on the Supreme Court, and also was the president of the American Bar Association uh, in the past, saying that, you know, we're better than juries um, and we should decide. And, and another judge similarly say, saying something uh, so I think that is some indication, um, and of course I talk more in the book about um, other things that are stated and what other scholars have also said about this period of time. But I think judges saying that we're better than juries is an indication that judges are finding for themselves, that is that they should have authority, and also finding uh, that other parts of government should have authority and that it's okay for 
the jury's authority to shift to these other parts of government. So it seems that um, we're left with one of the foxes guarding the hen house, right? In the form of the judiciary having to take action on its own in order to protect uh, the jury, uh, whether it's a traditional function or the newly emergent function. And I was struck by this. Now, you didn't go into this in, in detail, um, but I am curious about what you think about this. Um, this happens, this protection of the jury in the 1890s and uh, this change over the course of the 20th century where the jury is really greatly uh, diminished is a period of the technocrat wherein the person who's an expert is seen as the ideal functionary in the government. This is part of the rise of the administrative state, um, mm-hmm. that they are, they have the knowledge and the skill that's best suited to good governance. And that really you solve all your problems by just getting an expert in there. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that that disposition is something that may influence this shift on the part of judges saying that really judges are the best to do this, if we do say so ourselves? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, that is certainly part of the story. And I think um, others have written about, um, as you know, have written about the rise of the administrative state and, and, and the influence of that. And I think that, I think that you're on to something that, um, that, uh, that judges definitely think that, they are um, better able to decide these types of issues. I think that they think that agencies as a part of the administrative state are better able to decide these issues. Um, the example that I like to give is this um, more recent example where the SEC has um, started to shift um, civil insider trading cases uh, to itself to decide, even though in the past juries decided those cases and, and wow, that's pretty uh, astounding, I think, where the government is accusing someone of insider trading. And then Congress states to the SEC, you can decide this yourself. And certainly the argument is, is that we're more efficient and we're better able to decide the case. But um, as you know, the problem becomes, especially in a situation like that, that um, Someone um, that's doing the accusing is also doing the deciding, and I think that's hugely problematic. But I do think that you're um, that you pinpointed something that's very important here. This, and it goes back to some of the quotes that I have in the book that that these bodies think they are better than the jury. So let's jump ahead here. You, near, right near the end of the book, you make um, an argument for how to quote unquote reform this. And um, you give uh, what you call force uh, suggestions. Um, can you outline those? And then I want to ask you a few questions about those. Sure. So the main argument that I make is that we actually should get rid of uh, procedures that have uh, eliminated the jury's authority. And that's based on the historical model of the English jury. And so I talk about the fact that we have procedures like summary judgment that didn't exist um, in England in the early 18th century. We have um, administrative agencies deciding issues that um, didn't um, have the authority to do that. 
because, of course, they weren't created and they were not part of the Constitution. Uh, I talk about uh, the fact that the Fifth Amendment should be um, applied to the states. Uh, and I also talk about judicial acquittal. That is, judicial acquittal um, didn't exist. That is, once a jury convicted, a judge could not decide that the jury should not have convicted. So I, my first argument um, is that these procedures that have been created by the legislature should uh, not um, be um, permitted to be used because they're, in fact, unconstitutional using originalism. Um, and, in fact, I just wanted to sort of say that the reason we need to use originalism is because the, the jury otherwise won't have authority. You have a grasp for power from these other parts of government. Um, and so we have to actually be um, tied to a set point in time as to what the jury actually looked like. Uh, and so, so that's part of, that's my main argument in the book. But what I recognize is that uh, in this time, it's unlikely that Congress is going to decide that any of these procedures, uh, and those are just some examples of procedures that I think are problematic, uh, that, that, that Congress will say no to those procedures. And um, it's also very much unlikely that the United States Supreme Court is going to uh, find any of those procedures unconstitutional. Again, though, despite the fact that I think there is significant historical reason to find them and textual reasons to find those procedures that are uh, eliminating the jury um, unconstitutional. So um, in, the, in the brief uh, last chapter, I outline um, some ideas um, uh, for changing um, the, uh, uh, the system um, as sort of intermediate proposals for change. And so is that what you would, would you like me to talk about? Sure. Those? Yes. Yeah. And so uh, I, I, I've actually changed a little bit of my thinking actually even since I've written the book. Um, and so what I want to talk about is I'll talk about three of them. Um, and that is the, the plea offer requirement, uh, the sentence requirement, and the consensus requirement. Um, so the plea offer requirement and the sentence requirement are an effort to alleviate plea bargaining. Um, and the, that is to alleviate the problems of plea bargaining. So the problem I see with plea bargaining, um, and, and, and as I said before, it happens in over 90% of our, of our cases, the problem that I see with plea bargaining is that you have this disparity um, between what's offered uh, to the criminal defendant at plea, um, that is the sentence that's, that's available at the plea, versus the sentence that's available at the jury trial. So in essence, um, by taking your jury, you're having this penalty associated with taking the jury. Um, and so as a result of that, uh, the, the jury very, you know, decides very few criminal cases, um, and most cases are, are plea bargained. So what I um, do with my plea offer requirement and my sentence requirement is I propose that, um, in fact, the plea should be an active part of the jury trial. And the way that would be the case is, let's say someone was, uh, uh, there was a, a case where a prosecutor was saying to a criminal defendant, take a plea offer of simple possession. Uh, if you take that plea, um, you know, you're going to receive this particular sentence. Uh, but if you choose to go to a jury trial, I'm going to um, try uh, the charge of um, possession with intent to distribute, which, of course, has a 
much higher uh, sentence. And so if the prosecutor offered that, what would happen is that at the actual trial, if the criminal defendant didn't take that plea offer of the simple possession, the jury would actually hear um, and be able to decide itself whether to convict on simple possession uh, or the possession with intent to distribute or nothing. And the jury would actually hear the sentences associated with each. And so the idea here is that the jury is actually going to be able to convict on what was actually offered at the plea. And I think that actually is fair. And it um, allows the criminal defendant to actually take the jury because you can actually receive the sentence that's associated with the plea. Um, so that's the plea offer and sentence. Okay, so you you have this uh, proposal that it seems to me is going to respect the jury's capacity for making judgments that right now, today in modern practice throughout America at the state and federal levels is uh, a function of the prosecutor. And so this will grant the jury a lot more effective power in the criminal justice system. And let's assume for a second that that's a, an admirable goal. In other words, I won't challenge you on, you know, the, the wisdom of that, but how is that politically possible in terms of being realized? Um, because it seems to me that as, you know, back in Federalist 51, famously, uh, Madison argues, um, that ambition will be checked by ambition, but there's no permanent juror. It's an ad hoc institution, right? Uh, in other words, there's nobody that occupies that uh, public office that's there to advocate for it. And so how is this a project that's politically possible today? And I don't mean just in the sense of whether people like the idea of giving the jury versus the prosecutor more power. And I suspect many would. Um, that's just my armchair suspicion. But how is it something that would be achieved? Because as you, as you've already noted, it's unlikely that the judiciary is going to step in and say, well, you're right. We've been looking at it wrong all these years. Let's go to the originalist approach. Even a lot of purported originalists, um, might be fearful of the consequences of taking power away from the ju- judiciary. So how then is this a project that's something uh, that could be realized in practice? I think the, the way this could be realized is that similar to how we're having sort of a public uh, consciousness um, of mass incarceration and, um, uh, and, and, and people thinking, okay, there, this is problematic. And we still, we similarly are starting to think about, um, mandatory minimums and, and whether or not those are appropriate. Um, so I think that we've had, uh, issues that are actually related to some of the problems that I think are associated with, um, the jury not having power. And, and so, Plea bargaining just hasn't kind of been uh, the focus yet, um, and and so I think uh, that because of the sort of appreciation of the problems with mass incarceration and the problems with mandatory minimums, that I actually think politically 
that we're actually, quote, we're there. And we're also concerned about innocence. Um, we're concerned that innocent people are pleading uh, guilty. Uh, and, you know, but even separate from innocence, I think that we have concern that uh, people who are poor, uh, people who are, you know, sort of disenfranchised in our system, um, don't have um, a lot of power, and as a result, they're the ones that are being forced to take these these pleas. Um, so I think um, that because of these other sort of movements, I think that there is real good possibility that this can be a movement, and I'm certainly trying to, through the book and through actually writing more about these um, proposals, uh, trying to bring... Um, uh, attention to these issues. And um, there is one chapter that you uh, have where you review the state of jury practice in other countries. Um, why did you include that? What, what was your objective in that? In, in light of the fact that much of the book is really about the American context and the American constitutional interpretive context, what, what is the, um, the, the aid that is brought to bear by referencing all these different countries? Sure. The reason I did that was I wanted to look in that particular chapter at going beyond history. So most of the book is, you know, historically we were supposed to have a vibrant jury and this is what the jury was supposed to look like. But I recognize that a lot of people um, think that history has a limited role in interpreting the Constitution. And I wanted to look at uh, why um, the jury sh- should decide otherwise or why the sh- jury should not decide otherwise. And and so I looked at sort of the qualities of the jury, but I also looked at what other countries were doing. And what we see is that there are a lot of places that are considering lay participation, either in in as a part of a mixed panel that is of judges and jurors, or, a sim- or simply like what we have in the United States, a pure jury where all we have all lay participation. And so there are a number of places that are, that are newly considering um, uh, lay participation. There are a lot of other places um, in the world that uh, have lay participation. Uh, and in some ways, um, while we have supposedly a jury available in many more cases than uh, in other places, you can actually argue uh, that in the United States, because a judge can almost invariably second-guess a jury, that in some other countries actually don't have that system. And so you could argue that the jury or lay participation in other countries, in some other countries, is more vibrant than in the United States. So I I wanted to make these points so that people can understand that, um, you know, you could actually look to other countries and sort of say, um, you know, our, our lay participation isn't necessarily uh, the greatest um, if you compare it to other places in the world. And um, we're almost out of time here, so I want to just uh, ask you about um, one of the um, objections that you note uh, that seems to run throughout the entire 20th century when the jury's starting to, starting to lose some of its power is that we've got so many cases in the system, whether it's civil or criminal, that simply there's not enough days and hours in the week to, 
to try everything. And, um, uh, certainly, you know, juries themselves are notorious for uh, five o'clock Friday afternoon. If that's when they're deliberating, all of a sudden they magically come back and have a decision because they don't want to come back Monday morning. And so, um, the, the concerns about efficiency and cost, those seem to be, I think, uh, truly pragmatic concerns. And what do you think the argument, the best argument is against, you know, the, both the judges and the jurors themselves who would say, my goodness, this is, this would take a, a an even larger judiciary to handle all that's, uh, out there to be heard in terms of trials. Sure. So I just want to make one point just about jurors. Um, what judges always say about um, jurors is they do a really good job. So it's, it's so that's always something that I always like to mention. And 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 people also say that jurors and you didn't say this, but sometimes jurors don't want to serve. Um, but once they actually serve, they actually really, really appreciate their experience. It's like something that they talk about and that they're happy to have done. Of course, there are going to be exceptions to that. Um, so I just wanted to mention that um, while we were talking about jurors. But in terms of what you're saying about the efficiency and the cost and the argument um, about that, so uh, the, the jury was never meant to be, um, you know, efficient or um, uh or, uh, you know, necessarily a small cost. Um, the jury was meant to be a part of our Constitution. And, you know, I one of the things I like to say is that these other parts of government actually can be incredibly inefficient. So let the legislature um, is obviously one big example of that. But, but even though the legislature is inefficient, we don't say let's get rid of the legislature and give its, its responsibility to some other part of government. And I think that we have to think about the jury in that way, is that the jury is a part of our Constitution. We gave it certain responsibilities. It was never meant to be efficient. Uh, and while we can do things to try to make our system more efficient, and I think that we should do that, um, uh, I think that the efficiency cost argument is something that we don't use for the other parts of government and we shouldn't use for what I call the other branch, the jury. The book is The Missing American Jury. Restoring the Fundamental Constitutional Role of the Criminal, Civil, and Grand Juries. And we've been joined today by its author, Suja A. Thomas. It's published by Cambridge University Press. Suja, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Law podcast. 